listening to A Thinker's Guide to the Apocalypse. In our first season, you and I are uncovering what the archetype of the apocalypse has to teach us, particularly in these times of disruption, pain, and uncertainty. As we explore the psychological meaning, we're going to dive deep into your inner world so you can discover where and how you need to grow. I'm your host, Jen, a licensed professional counselor, MDiv earner, and all-around curious soul. My mythical lawyers want me to remind you that all the information in this podcast is most definitely not a substitute for help from a licensed mental health professional. If you enjoy this podcast, do me a favor and rate, review, and subscribe. Okay, enough of that business. Let's dive in. I imagine death so much, it feels like a memory. Hamilton, or the canny, nearly wholesale fictional character and musical of Lin-Manuel Miranda's invention, it haunts me, which is, I guess, a good thing. And also, in my mind, I'm like, oh, it's a good thing I only discovered it, I don't know, seven months ago. But I'm not the only one. You know that. Uh, I mean, we all know that. It's grossed over half a billion as of last summer, and I have no idea how the Disney Plus deal works into that. But I, I think it's probably also not surprising to you that part of what I love about Hamilton so much is the many layers, musically, lyrically, and now, thanks to Disney Plus, visually, that I get to see of Hamilton. And it's more than just that, even. It's this archetypal figure that Miranda crafted out of a very different, less interesting in some ways, historical antecedent. What I love about this Alexander Hamilton is that he feels so much more human. Death, I think, has a way of sharpening things. It makes everything come more alive, even as we approach the end. And panic is a rehearsal for death. Or maybe it's not so much a rehearsal as it's a way that we could approach death if we don't take the time to practice. My country, the United States, for good and for ill, is in the midst of a panic attack and it's promising to unveil what has been stuffed in the shadow of our consciousness. In our fifth episode, you and I were exploring the psychological meaning of panic, particularly how panic attacks us from both within and how it plays out on the grand stage of life. I live down the street from death. Unsurprisingly, she keeps her lawn immaculate. As I drive past, I notice three men in vests with neon yellow thick stripes, each wearing an N95 mask, as they manicure the cemetery plots. It's May 22nd, 2020, and I'm driving to pick up our takeout Japanese. I have Hamilton blasting on my stereo, and I'm just humming along. I've been thinking a lot about death and apocalypse lately, and talking quite a bit about the latter in therapy, supervision, and just in any conversation I can get. And it's not that I necessarily avoid talking about death, particularly in therapy. It's just that death often feels really esoteric. Though I'm, those I'm close to, they're living, they continue to live, and most are not close to death, although not all. 
That's really just an excuse, though. It's an excuse because death is an agonizing thing to come to grips with. We all die. It's just a matter of time. And I guess I suppose for the curious left behind, a matter of circumstance. But back to that Friday afternoon. I wasn't thinking about death. Even though it was Memorial Day weekend, and I had gleefully given myself Friday and Monday off. Even though Hamilton was literally singing about how he wasn't going to throw away his shot. Even though I was very faithfully checking the Maryland Corona statistics every morning and feeling the pinch on my heart as I made up stories about who had died and how those who loved felt about it. And I suppose even though it was Memorial Day, a day to remember our dead, those who fought for liberty in a peculiarly American way of life, I was entrenched in a I'm not thinking about death and the end of the world today kind of mood. I'm sure you've had some of those moods lately. Really, from what I remember, I was mostly thinking about my tuna avocado roll and the really good miso soup that I would soon slurp, much to my partner's annoyance. And truthfully, it is very annoying how I slurp soup. I was thinking about all this until I saw the funeral processional. I was third in line, waiting for the red light. There was a car length between me and the navy blue Toyota Camry in front of me. I'm always doing that. My dad taught me so, even though he rarely, if ever, leaves that much space between him and the next car. And I saw this funeral processional and I craned my neck. I wanted to take in all there was to see. I've only been to one funeral. Which really, it seems pretty strange to me, given how much time I've spent around death in both its literal and more esoteric forms. My grandfather died years ago shortly before my wedding. I wasn't close to him. I wasn't that sad then, nor really am I now. Any form of empathy I had, I saved for others. I say that, I say that probably was a kind of numbing out, but the relationship I had with him was always strained. And it wasn't strained for... for any dramatic Lifetime movie reason. It was strained because... Well, because of personal things that I'm not going to tell you on a podcast, but it was strained. So the loss of him was more of a concept of having a grandfather. It was not really of the person himself, which, which is sad in and of itself, but that's kind of a side trail and uh, I don't know, I might be just avoiding what is to come, what is we are talking about today. That funeral procession was small. There were two cars, seven people, all physically distanced in these couplets, except for the seventh, who stood apart from the others. And they stood circled around a freshly dug grave under a white tent. Two wore navy whites, and all the others were in black. I found myself wondering who the dead had been, and who the living still were. But then the car behind me honked, and I remembered, I don't have time to linger and watch, and that red light had turned green, and it was time to go. It was time to get food, to avoid the topic of dying, to pretend that life was the kind of normal that I had become accustomed to. 2020, I originally wrote in my notes, has been a difficult year, which is really just a, I guess, a nice way to say, like, it's been a total fucking shit show. I actually said earlier today in my own group therapy that, like, I just, I keep getting to this place where, 
It feels like things are okay. It feels like I'm starting to like get the rhythm of whatever it is that's going on. And then the next thing happens and I am in disarray all over again. And that probably for you seems obvious on the surface as to why. There, there were the bushfires in Australia, then the death of an Iranian general by US drones and gesture that uh, frankly almost started World War III. But both of those were quickly eclipsed by the WHO announcing a global pandemic. Ah, our favorite friend, COVID-19. Then the U.S. mostly ignored all the ramifications, environmental, geopolitical, and public health, both to our detriment and public shame. And that covers about the first week. Week two held a plane crash and nearly 200 deaths and the beginning of the impeachment trial of Donald Trump. If we keep taking this week by week, though, I will quickly and profoundly overwhelm you by reminding you of all the things that it's been easier to forget. So instead, let's just try to get some of the highlights. The UK withdrew from the EU, Kobe died with his daughter, Trump was acquitted and proceeded on his path to live-action roleplay being a fascist dictator, the Dow plunged, and then yo-yoed its way as the billionaires fretted over their perceived worth. The numbers of the pandemic climb and climb and climb, the death toll becomes more unfathomable, and spring shifts to summer, and man has it been a hot summer. So then, we find out that COVID is not the only killer on the loose. We also have white men pretending to be the police who add to the death toll. The first, who this article I read described as an injustice collector, he killed 22 people in Nova Scotia. The second, and third, murdered Amand Aubrey, who was just out for a jog, and quickly found himself running for his life. Oh, and then there were the murder hornets, the Sahara dust storms, the bailing out of the bridge while the poor continued to struggle, and fucking Mitch McConnell fiddling while the world burns. Also, perhaps not as horrific as all that came before, but Sarah Palin was on The Masked Singer, and she gave a rousing, albeit disturbing rendition of Sir Mix-a-Lot's Baby Got Back. Another politician more intent on entertaining than leading. What else is new? And that's just me listing events, not examining the ripple of feeling that emanates out of the core. The horror of what is and was and will be. We're saving that for a different day. But often the horror predates the panic. But we still have to move through the panic before we can ever come close to the hell of heartbreak and finding ways to move through. And guys, I write this stuff a couple days, sometimes a couple weeks, before I actually sit down and record. And as I was reading that list, I was like, oh, fuck, but what about Roger Stone? And the CDC no longer has control of a coronavirus. Like, there's been other shit that has happened literally in just the seven days since I read this. Total shit show of a year. But I didn't know any, I didn't know all of this the Friday of Memorial Day weekend. It was one of those days I was just telling you about that I was starting to feel like things were feeling okay. I was starting to feel like I had a handle on what would happen. If not precisely, then at least in a general kind of sense. And I was feeling excited. Disney had announced, I don't know if it was that weekend, but I remember hearing about it sometime around that time that Disney was going to release the recording of the original cast of Hamilton, which I had hoped and planned to try to go to this year for my birthday, which uh, incidentally happened in the first week of lockdown where I live. 
And so Hamilton was going to come out just before the 4th of July. And I literally marked it on my calendar, which I don't mark anything but like appointments on my calendar. I don't put a lot of self-care-y, like Jen, remember to watch this TV show or hey, this fabulous book that you've been so excited about is coming out. I don't put that shit on my calendar, which means I often don't end up doing it, which is sad in and of itself. But again, not what we're talking about today. I put it on my calendar though, because I wanted to remember to slow down and relax. Waiting, waiting is a drug. It's a drug of my very favorite sort. When you have something to look forward to, it really becomes easy to ignore the present tense. So on that Friday afternoon, I picked up the food, I came home, and I do not remember what else we did. Things faded into the ordinary. I didn't so much forget the funeral as I considered that it didn't concern me. I tucked it away, like a canned good in the pantry of my soul. There, on the off chance the apocalypse really did come and steal all the fresh resources of my day-to-day, I would have access to this piece of depth, to this way of dealing with something that felt painful, felt panic-inducing. I do remember that weekend... I swore off the news. I swore off even looking at Reddit's version of the news. I was just so ready to take a break from all of Trump's misdeeds and from the daily death toll. It's my first time off since Christmas. I figured I deserved it. My schedule was all sorts of jumbled the following week. It was fitting in my Monday people on other days, and I just felt as jumbled as my schedule. The video of George Floyd surfaced sometime while I slept Monday night to Tuesday morning. I still haven't watched it. The idea of doing so fills me with the same dread I feel every Good Friday. Likely, that's my privilege and fragility wrapped up in it. The decision not to watch horror unfold as a person is crushed to death, struggling to breathe, to stay alive when the world is dead set on killing him. But I I couldn't watch. It didn't mean that my heart didn't crack. Like it had cracked when I had read the reports of Breonna Taylor's death back in March. In Freddie Gray's death the spring of 2015. In Eric Gardner's death six Julys ago. But a cracked heart isn't much good to anybody. So I do what we do. Patch my heart up. I aim to pretend that what was happening wasn't about me. But it was. Your country can't have a panic attack of monumental proportions without you being affected, and without you doing some of the affecting. And I don't mean that just metaphorically, I mean it quite literally. One of the earliest noted characteristics of the coronavirus was how it attacks the respiratory system. It robs you of breath. And our world is being robbed of its breath. And one of the questions I keep asking myself is, What does this deadly panic attack have to show us? What is this panic attack we're having as a country and as a world? Which is hard for me to answer either of these with any kind of brevity or totality, because I'm just one small human being watching mostly from the sidelines. But I'm wanting to give you my limited thoughts, and I'm wanting to invite you to consider your own thoughts, to consider your own part 
in this respiratory system. Now they're saying coronavirus is like a blood disease. I don't totally fully understand all of this. I'm just relying on Dr. Anthony Fauci and uh, his medical colleagues to inform me that it's coronavirus 2020. It's something that gets in our blood and it blocks us. It either blocks our breath or it blocks our, I don't even know what the blood circulatory system is called. I know it has a name. I'm just uh, living right now, guys. I didn't look it up. This blockage that's happening within us, we all have a part in it and we have both a small, limited, tiny part. And then as part of the bigger system, we have a part. And so I'm wanting to invite you as we talk about panic attacks and panic on micro and macro scales to think of your own role in all of this. But first, I think we probably should back up and consider what is anxiety? Anxiety is many things. In fact, we probably could have a whole podcast series on what is anxiety? How does it show up? What is the constellation of makes anxiety up and what are the flavors of anxiety and how does it appear? We're not going to do that. For the sake of today, we are going to consider anxiety as a complex system built of fear of what will come. And that fear of what will come originates in what has already happened. Panic is the intense manifestation of the fear of history repeating itself. It's Groundhog Day without any of the humor. When people have a panic attack, it typically looks something like your heart starts to pound more and more rapidly. Your chest hurts, your stomach hurts, your head hurts, your soul hurts. Sweat starts to trickle down your spine. You start to tremble. It's like there's an earthquake inside of you and it's aiming to collapse all of your internal systems. Your breath grows more and more constricted. It's like you're sipping through a straw, desperate for the taste of life. And you go hot and cold, hot and cold, and it starts to be hard to determine what and who you are. And it's somehow both a sense of impending doom and danger and fear that nothing has any meaning. You feel dizzy, lightheaded, you start to feel faint, there's some numbness in your extremities, and maybe that tickling sensation of, of not being sure if your hands are really your hands anymore. You feel unreal. You start to be detached. It's almost as if you are both in your body and out of your body at the same time. And the sense of total loss of control and the fear that death is approaching much more quickly than you would have ever thought. And and something people don't always talk about, but I see often when I see panic attacks, it used to be in my office, but now it's over uh, the computer via telehealth. It, it's a subtle, nearly missed feeling that you are forever changed. If life continues for you, it will never be the same. It, it's just a one degree change of course. And it doesn't necessarily always seem so dramatic or so drastic from the outside, but it, it sends you in a completely different direction. It's in a, a way that you don't even know how profoundly it marks you until you get to the end and you look back and see all the alternatives of what could have been. Panic attacks are terrifying because in many ways they physically and also emotionally 
replicate the moment of death. There's that death rattle, that shaking inside. And even though it's not time for you to die, you gasp for your breath. You gasp for life. And this, this here feels like a repetition of all the trauma that we've been holding on to for a really long time, but have, for many of us, been ignoring. And if not ignoring, sometimes just having to disassociate from the weight of how horrific the world in which we live is. We're having a panic attack. It doesn't show up in quite the ways I just described. That is a micro panic attack, although certainly we can talk about the macro. And the macro is a gasping by those who are not getting the breath they need. And by breath, I mean probably metaphorically, And also, literally, George Floyd wasn't getting the breath that he needed. Breonna Taylor wasn't getting the safety she needed. And these are just such heartbreaking archetypes of what is happening to the, the black community, for lack of a better phrase. This is what is happening to people who are the victims of racism and yet, and yet overcome an immense I don't even have words and I can feel sort of my privilege and then my own sort of white guilt and shame coming up like, oh, Jen, what the fuck are you doing? Like, you can't be talking about this. You don't have the right. And it's true. I don't know that any of us has the right to be talking about this. But it doesn't mean that we should not talk about it. We have to have these hard conversations, even if it's just, (laughs) I'm imagining you as one single individual person who is going to have compassion for all the ways that I I may not be saying this as compassionately, as lovely as I wish I would. This panic attack of racism is so serious, but it doesn't look serious if you are not allowing yourself to be in it. Often when people have panic attacks, like, you know, in normal everyday life, it doesn't look like much. It just looks like somebody who, like some water went down the wrong pipe and you're like, oh, just breathe, like put your hands up in the air, like you'll be fine. Just breathe, just breathe, just breathe. Not realizing um, from the other side how challenging and difficult that is, that that is such arrogance to say to somebody, just breathe when they're in the midst of a panic attack. And it doesn't mean that that's not, I guess, in some ways helpful advice, but people already know that they're trying to breathe, but they can't get the air in. And often, I think in a lot of this dialogue about what is happening with race in our country, is there are answers that are the obvious answers and the seemingly simple answers, but it negates, it doesn't understand what is actually going on the other side. It doesn't hold empathy. It doesn't move to seek to breathe in time with those who have been robbed of their breath. And when we're talking about this in the macro scale, this is not not somebody who is just hyperventilating because they're anxious. This is a, a lack of breath, a lack of resources because of a deeply evil system 
and not just a system, but systems built on systems built on systems, a, a giant complex. So I'm getting a little off track. So I like scripts that keep me on the, the pathway that I wish to follow. So what is the function of a panic attack? Often when people show up in my office, they just think something is deeply wrong with them. Like, what is wrong with me, John? I don't understand. Like, I'm just having these panic attacks and I'm terrified that I will have them in public or I'll have them in a really inconvenient place. What if I have one when I'm in the car driving? And there is this sense that the panic attack or kind of the more mild form of an anxiety attack, so maybe not losing all of your ability to breathe, but still feeling like drenched in fear. Both of these are often not about what's happening in the moment. They certainly are triggered by things in the moment, but what is happening in the moment isn't that awful or that terrible. It's that there are remnants of the awful and terrible that come up. Panic attacks, they uncover what has been hiding. For individuals, it uncovers the anxiety that people have been shoving away for years in every hidey hole inside that they can find. I remember the first time I had a panic attack. True story also. The research shows that many people will have at least one, maybe two panic attacks across their lifespan. It's not really as unusual as you would think. But the first time I had a panic attack, I was home for a holiday. I don't really remember which one. I can't really remember what I was wearing or exactly what had been happening in general in my life. But I do remember that I was in the grocery store with my mom. Maybe my dad was there too, I'm not sure. And the aisles are wide in that store. But I could feel them closing in around me. I, I could feel the quickening of my breath. I felt very lightheaded. And I knew I just had to get out. Which I did. And I went back and I sat in the minivan and I, I had this very odd sensation that I had died in the grocery store, but somehow I continued to live. That was not about the grocery store. That grocery store is actually fucking awesome. I miss Market Basket. You guys will find if you stick around long enough. I really love grocery stores. Fresh Market is currently my favorite grocery store in the whole wide world, but Market Basket's pretty awesome. So it, it wasn't about the grocery store. It was about all sorts of things that was going on for me. And there was an element of things feeling like I, I was getting closed in. I was getting closed in by a variety of systems of thought. And I was trying to find ways to integrate what I was learning in college with what I had been raised to, to uncritically just accept. And that critical way of thinking and being in the world would not square with all the things from childhood. And I had to choose. And I, I felt backed into a corner. And so I left. Not just the grocery store, but, but that childhood faith and religion, I guess, in a grander sense or maybe smaller sense, who knows. I left that system. I had the privilege of leaving that system. Not everybody has that ability. I, 
not everybody has the ability to leave the monsters that haunt them, terrify them, tear them apart. Some of those monsters take over larger and larger portions of not just our psychic ability to be in the world, but also like literally the world. And it's tricky. It's tricky to consider what monsters are hiding inside of you. And those are often the monsters like turning off the lights, turning off the systems, turning things down to turn you off. Because that is the trickiest thing about panic. It sometimes goes inward and it collapses our system. It tightens us up until we feel like dying. And then sometimes the panic goes outward and it tightens its grip on the other. And both are dangerous. They're dangerous in in opposite ways, but are are similar. Interesting, I know I've already mentioned it, but it reminds me a lot of Frost's poem where he talks about how the world ends. Does it end in fire or does it end in ice? And they both burn. And panic is that way too. When it goes inside and collapses our system, we end up feeling like we are dying. And the slightly less intense version of panic, anxiety attack, for lack of a better word, it has this ability to to turn off all of our, our inner resources. It, it transmutes the voices inside that should be helping to guide us and to motivate us and to tend us, right? To, to nurture and to challenge. It takes those voices. Anxiety does this. Depression does this. Shame does this. Trauma does this. It takes those things and it turns them around and actually makes you feel like shit inside. It, it, it turns what should have been good into something feared, into something that makes you believe that you are less than you are. And so that is dangerous. And I, I see, I see that a lot in the people I work with and I can feel the tendencies within me and work a lot on them in my own therapeutic work. And I don't know, just in my own relationships and my own day-to-day thinking. But panic isn't always drawn inward or turned inward. Sometimes it is also turned outward. And when it does, as I was saying, it it tightens its grip on the other, and it it turns violent often. And really, when panic is tainted by hatred and a rigid mindset, it, it becomes deadly. We talked about it becoming deadly inward, but it also becomes deadly outward, sometimes really quite literally. And it, panic just in general has a lot of power. And it becomes dark and unwieldy when it's accompanied by self-pity and that condescending attitude, that condescending ignorance that I know what I know and you know nothing. All of this actually also makes me think of the psychological defense, it's a psychoanalytic term called repetition compulsion, which is a psychological phenomenon in which a person repeats an event or its circumstances, just over and over and over again. The most simplified pop version of this is Groundhog Day. But really, it shows up in any number of ways. It can show up 
in relationship with your partner, your romantic partner. It can show up at the kinds of jobs and bosses you end up with. It can show up with friends, but it typically finds its roots in childhood, finds its roots with whoever your primary caregivers were or those early relationships that marked you, whether they were peer relationships or romantic interest or whatever it might have been, professors or teachers. But repetition compulsion, it's what happens when we keep playing something out again and again and again until we can find a way to do or to be in relationship differently. And if we stay unaware of the pattern, we're not only deepening its impact, but it's staying power. And there's something in the dynamics of racism, the violence, the, the dehumanization, the, the mining of others' strengths and beauties and brilliance and just giftedness overall. There's something in that that we've played the story out again and again and again. And I, I don't know, I'm not a historian at least in this sense, in that I, I don't know when this pattern started. Because I, I imagine it's not just 400 years ago. Uh, we, you don't get to a place that you're in enslaving the people based on the color of their skin and based where they come from in this world. You don't just go from zero to 60, typically. There's plenty of of panic, of of power, of of all of the human yuck that happens before that happens. And I, I am I'm no scholar in any of that. And certainly I invite you if you're listening and I I said something hurtful or I said something that's just plain wrong. I, I wanna I wanna know if if you're willing to take the time to share with me, even just to direct me in the right way to go. You don't need to teach me. I'd really appreciate it. So I'm wanting to circle back to kind of the main point, at least for today. And my question for myself and for you is, what does panic teach us about death? What what would have happened if I could have felt the thrum of anxiety as I passed that funeral on March 22nd, 2020? What would have happened if I could have really felt the anxiety and the eruption of all of these feelings when George Floyd was murdered? What would have happened if it didn't take that for it to erupt in me? What would have happened if I could have been more attuned to my own humanness, my own empathy, my own anger, sadness, feeling, complicity, all of this, what would have happened if I could have been more awake? And that might be kind of a mute question in that I wasn't. So, okay, but what am I going to do to stay awake? So often when panic attacks happen, at least in the clinical sense, and people come to therapy to work on them and we work on them and we figure out what was inducing the panic, what was triggering the panic, what is the anxiety that's been hidden away for many years? Can we unpack that? Can we understand why 
you'd have that reaction. Once we get there, people are like, oh, fuck, this is awesome. I'm not having a panic attack anymore. It sort of feels a little bit like, I don't know, people in sobriety, like, like 20 days free of panic attack, 30 days free, three months, six months, a year. And once there's some distance from them, there is a sense, a wish, a longing to be like, okay, that was a problem. We fixed it. No problem. Let's move on. Uh, I don't need to come to therapy anymore. Uh, you fixed me, Jen. Thank you so much. Catch it later. <laughs> if you're a client, why are you listening to the podcast? Just have a conversation with me in session. But if you were a client, let's just say in the theoretical sense, you would know that I'm not going to let you get away with that bullshit. That is not the point of therapy. The point of therapy is not for me to fix you. You are not a toaster and I'm certainly not an electrician or very good at do-it-yourself activities around the house. Therapy is a relationship. In fact, life is a relationship. And when we pay attention to where relationship erupts in painful, destructive ways, just because we stop it from erupting doesn't mean the underlying source is not still there. That doesn't still require healing or containment or understanding or change. If you're having a panic attack, whether you are a person or a country, a band-aid ain't going to fix it. A benzo ain't going to fix it. I mean, it will give you some temporary relief in the moment, but it doesn't solve the underlying thing. Panic attacks are signs of puzzles in you, in us, that need to be resolved. But panic is only the precursor. And if panic prepares us for death, then horror prepares us for the reality of life, which is sometimes harder. But thankfully for me, and my, like, slightly rumbling tummy, I haven't had dinner yet, and I'm pretty hungry, actually. Thankfully for me, that is the topic of next week. Today, I want to encourage you to consider what not only is your panic, but also the world's panic. What does panic in both senses have to teach you? And maybe you might consider this by thinking to yourself, wondering to yourself, where have I gotten the breath knocked out of me? And if you're really brave, where have I knocked the breath out of someone else? All right, I'm going to go eat some dinner. I'll talk to you guys next time. Dude, thank you so much for hanging out, exploring your death, and I hope allowing yourself to be challenged to go deeper in understanding what makes you and your inner world tick. As always, I'd love for you to rate, review, and subscribe on iTunes or wherever you'd like to collect all your podcasts. If you're gaining value or you just really like the podcast, I'd love for you to help me spread the word. As G.B. Stern said, silent gratitude isn't much use to anyone. If you're an Instagrammer, feel free to screenshot an episode, add it to your stories, and tag me at Therapy for Thinkers. If you are not a social media person, totally okay. Just share it with somebody you care about who you think might enjoy it. All right, that's enough rambling for today. I'll catch you guys next time.